0: Good afternoon. (coughs) Excuse me. It's Monday, the 2nd of January 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to have Mike Robinson back with us. And uh, we've got David Scott bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border. And we've also got Mark Anderson. Uh, well, David, we're going to get started off with with a trepidatious look at
1: 2023, according to this graphic. So uh, people staring around the corner,
2: uh, poking the door with a big stick uh, and not quite sure what's on the other side of it. Not sure what's going to come out. And I thought Brian losing his voice in the first three seconds was a good start to the, to the, to the year and uh, was entirely consistent with that illustration. Now, to inspire us all, though, Um, We have um, the Prime Minister making an address, uh, and I'm afraid, sorry about this, but I'm going to inflict it upon you. Fortunately, it's very short, just like he is.
3: Hi everyone, I hope you had a happy Christmas. Before we enter the new year, I want to take a moment to reflect. 2022 was tough, just as we recovered from an unprecedented global pandemic. Russia launched a barbaric and illegal invasion across Ukraine. This has had a profound economic impact around the world, which the UK is not immune to. Now, I know many of you have felt that impact at home. That's why this government has taken difficult but fair decisions to get borrowing and debt under control. And it's because of those decisions that we've been able to help the most vulnerable with the rising cost of energy bills. Three months ago, I stood at the steps of Downing Street and promised I would work relentlessly on the things that matter most to you. Since then, this government has taken decisive action to back our NHS with record resources to tackle the backlogs – more funding, more doctors and more nurses. We're also tackling illegal migration and stopping criminals from abusing our asylum system. I'm not going to pretend that all our problems will go away in the new year, but 2023 will give us an opportunity to showcase the very best of Britain on the world stage, continuing to stand with our Ukrainian friends against Putin's brutality and defending freedom and democracy wherever we find it under threat. In this historic year of His Majesty the King's coronation, we will come together with pride in everything that makes this country great. Yes, 2023 will have its challenges, but the government I lead is putting your priorities first. I wish everyone a very happy new year.
2: Now what I would describe that as is an empty suit, right, because he actually managed to say almost nothing at all. We had the uh, automatic, well it's all Putin's fault and Covid's fault, don't blame me even though um, the economic crisis he was personally responsible for. Um, we mentioned the NHS, but the thing that got me is is the is the is the language. Um, we're going to do things that m- that matter most to you, not specified. Um, we're going to have pride in everything that makes this country great not specified it's all vague it's postmodernism he's not saying anything he's expecting the listener to fill the gaps in and put their own meaning in empty words what do you think gentlemen
1: uh, well first of all i'd like to say i think you should be shot for playing that in the first place but aside from that <laughs> <laughs> aside from that uh, I, I think that is the
2: shape
0: of things to come david well
2: yeah Yep. It's, it's, it's a sobering experience for everyone.
0: Limp wristed and insincere, and into my mind came "Bring Back Liz trust Oh my lord! Right, there we go. That's the well, first half for twenty twenty three.
2: It's it's quite well, a right, Any any leader that we now get makes you feel nostalgic for the last one. Is is kind of a, an iron law. So well spotted, Brian. And also, you can see why she beat him because. Yeah, Um, and and just to illustrate the point we've got a little cartoon here Uh, thanks to Twitter Uh, I I, I wag on Twitter for this Uh, we've got um, uh, Rishi as uh, Lord Farquad from um, the Shrek film who's a very short uh, pompous ruler Uh, and he's saying well some of you may have to go without food and heating but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make so there we go David, just just very
1: briefly, just very briefly before you move on, I just want to mention, obviously I was in uh, Northern Ireland over the Christmas break uh, and we decided to uh, go through Dublin. Uh, now he's saying he's, he's dealing with uh, illegal migration and so on. I just want to make the point that if you're travelling from Hollyhead to Dublin on the ferry... You got passport control at Dublin. If you're travelling from Dublin to Holyhead on the ferry, there is no passport control. Uh, and uh, obviously there shouldn't be. It's a common travel area and whatnot. But, uh, of course, British Border Control, Border Force, actually is not uh, maintaining the border in any kind of fit state at all.
0: Just want to make that point very briefly. Uh, we'll, we'll be touching on border issues a bit later in the news. Yes.
2: By by way of comparison, some similarities, but not that many, we have a little clip here now from Vladimir Putin's equivalent address.
4: My fellow Russians and dear friends, 2022 is drawing to a close. It was a year of tough but necessary decisions, critical steps towards achieving Russia's full sovereignty and a vital consolidation of our society. This year has revealed the true nature of many things. It has shown the difference between courage and bravery on one hand and treachery and cowardice on the other, which shows that there's nothing greater than love for our families and relatives, loyalty to our friends and brothers-in-arms, and devotion to our homeland. This was a year of pivotal and fateful events that set the foundation of our common future and our true independence.
2: So, it's all about independence, according to Mr. Putin. Now, there were some similarities, tough but necessary decisions, not sure what consolidation of society means either, but unlike uh, unlike Rishi, Uh, Vladimir Putin seems to know what what the actual uh, issues are that he's he's looking to defend what his country stands for he mentioned sovereignty, bravery, love, loyalty devotion and the homeland whereas Rishi didn't mention anything, he just left it to the listener to fill in their own uh, their own views whatever they wanted and I think that was the, 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 the distinction I'd like to make one leader right or wrong knows what he's trying to do the other one really doesn't seem to um any comments before i move on gentlemen
0: well i think you've some you've summed it up nicely of course many people will say yes but it's putin but it's the points about uh, the nation state families individuals uh, morality balance in society these are the key issues and it makes me wonder if they are the key issues which the west are determined to stamp out by their desire for regime change in Russia but that's probably discussion for a, another time.
2: So we move on to Financial Times they've been doing some uh, predictions for the world in 2023 as they do with their wonderful writing staff so we'll see what we think of this uh, question, one question they raised will there be a ceasefire in R- Russia's war in Ukraine um, interesting uh, phrasing there but there we go okay uh, and they're quite clear, no. Conditions for lasting ceasefire, little on a formal peace settlement, are unlikely to be met in 2023, so they see more war. That one I would agree with. Uh, the next one on the fi- on financial matters, and this is the Financial Times, you might hope for quality analysis. Will the Fed start to cut interest rates? No, they say. And they then explain why the market's already building in, the Fed cutting interest rates, because the market's not stupid. But they believe the Open Market Committee bureaucrats, who say that it's going to be 5% or more, and they're convinced that these people really mean business. So that's the naivety of the Financial Times. I thought that was, in its own way, quite stunning.
1: Yes, okay, brilliant. Well, let's uh, move quickly on, because uh, Rishi Sunak of course, mentioned how much they're doing for the NHS. Uh, so let's start off with the good news uh, for the year. Uh, we have a new COVID variant. It's uh, increasingly causing hospitalizations according to the mainstream press and the government. Uh, it's called XBB.1.5, so we've all got to be scared of that. That's fantastic. Uh, but uh, don't worry, uh, we can't go on like this. this. is the main headline in many of the press this morning. Uh, so this is Sky News. We cannot go on like this. NHS under unbearable strain as at least six hospital trusts deal with critical incidents. Uh, And they're talking about a combination of uh, coronavirus, the flu and RSV. Uh, Then we've got uh, Britons resorting to DIY medicine because they're unable to see a GP, new research suggests. So this is a survey of 2000 people suggesting that uh, people can't get GP Uh, appointments and therefore they're taking matters into their own hands. Uh, The Guardian asking, Flu, Covid, RSV, why is Britain so very ill? And I'm just going to say here, David, uh, before we go into your NHS section here, uh, this issue of these three, this triple whammy of Flu, Covid and RSV. This has been talked about for for over two years ago here is uh, gov.uk from october 2021 modeling suggests that winter this winter influenza and rsv hospital administration the deaths could be two times that of a normal year so that's over a year ago they were predicting that and in july i think this was yeah july 2021 the mail headline uh, based on a government press release up to sixty thousand people in england could die from flu this winter because so few people have immunity due to lockdowns reports Warren's report commissioned by Patrick Valence. and again they were talking about this combination of uh, co- of coronavirus, uh, flu and RSV. <clears throat> in the meantime uh, have they been preparing? I mean they were the ones claiming that this was what was going to happen in the coming winters. Have they been preparing for that? Well no they are. they have not. They haven't opened any new beds, they haven't uh, uh, produced any new staff. In fact staff have been leaving in droves as uh, as Debbie has been talking about for quite some time. So, uh, we, but we don't need to worry. We don't need to worry. It's not Rishi's fault, David. It's, it's just circumstances.
2: Oh, yes. I mean, I mean, you wouldn't hold politicians to blame for the centrally operated, centrally con- controlled, centrally funded um, state health sector. I mean, what, in what way was it anything to do with Rishi? Uh,
1: indeed. But what's going on in Scotland
2: then? Right. Okay. So um, there's a slight sign of uh, reality starting to rear its ugly head. So here we've got uh, Scotsman reporting uh, the NHS needs a radical whole system reform. So this is uh, a former uh, NHS uh, chief uh, speaking on this, um, and he say he says that if the NHS is truly precious, it deserves a robust diagnosis and it requires radical surgery. More money is needed, I'll say that, uh, but it's far from the whole answer. For a start, there's uh, not a cupboard full of trained experienced professionals just waiting to be recruited. So he then points to failures in access, uh, or promising to fix those failures, uh, largely visible through waiting times, without a willingness to engage on system design and restructuring the way that uh, resources are applied. It's no more than posturing. Quote, the the issue will be a series of budget and resource challenges, where increasing demand will drive increasingly perverse incentives to the detriment of the people who actually need diagnosis, care and treatment. So he's talking about a whole system collapse here. So this is Professor Gray. So he called he, he called for Scotland to learn from countries like Sweden, where they have integrated systems delivered at a local level, less need for central control, so less central planning. Um, Frontline staff and citizens having a say in what's needed. It almost sounds like a free market, oh, gosh. Um, I, and he said it, it requires radical surgery to, to achieve this. It's time to, for us to look to Sweden, the Netherlands, Alaska, and other international examples, embrace local decision making to promote the contribution of the voluntary sector, recognise the private sector, uh, and create the health and care services for the future with access, quality, and sustainability at its core. So it's a bit vague, but he's saying. We need to change it, and we need to change it radically. Now, this is a this is an improvement because we go back a couple of years. Here we see um, the experts. Let's ask the ex- experts. So this is this is 2018. so not that long ago. Um, they talk about radical action on the NHS. A joint report from the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh and the Good Governance Institute has been published, which sets out five radical recommendations for the future of healthcare in Scotland. Do you want to see the radical um, uh, proposals? The, the experts agreed. The experts agreed. The experts agreed should be already a red flag. The experts agreed that healthcare in Scotland is facing some significant challenges. It's not how they're phrasing it now. And that there must be urgent requirements for radical action. They established the healthcare system must be prepared to take risks. Okay, interesting. And be more innovative uh, when tackling challenges and planning for the future. It said, right, bullet point one. We need stronger health and social care integration with joint financial agreements. Sub, right, translate that, we need more central planning. Um, point two, we need a new political agreement to depoliticise integrated healthcare. Right, translate that, we don't want democratic control over the central planning, we just want the bureaucrats to have the power. Point number three, we're going to create a public platform for more active public engagement focusing on the true cost of healthcare and the public's essential role in the future design of health and social care. Translation, it's your fault, right? you sick, horrible, grotty people mucking up our beautiful system. Point four, uh, four, shifting the balance of care informed by policy-based evidence with a series of clear collective outcomes underpinning underpinned by strong governance structures. Translate that, we need more central planning. Uh, We're going to introduce new technologies with evidence-based implementation approaches better supported and managed nationally. Translation, more central planning. So the experts had no idea. And that's why this slight sign of reality Uh, reeling its head is quite encouraging that they're they're realising that that the system as a whole, the way it's formed, the way it's created, how it operates the incentives, perverse incentives it generates needs to be radically changed because it is going down. Now more on that in just a moment Um, just before we do um, if anyone out there is looking for a job, the Scottish Covid Inquiry is looking for a chief executive The salaries are generous, £95,930 a year. Um, And uh, so this is for an inquiry announced by the First Minister in August 2021. So we've got from August 2021 to 2023, and we're just now recruiting a chief executive. That gives you an idea how um, quickly the inquiry is progressing. But if anyone out there in the UK column audience uh, feels they're qualified and would like to apply, do let us know how it goes. I wouldn't maybe mention you heard it here though. Say you saw it on The Guardian. Uh, going back to um, the NHS, uh, we've got The Times here reporting that it's rationing treatment amid a policy vacuum. Um, so they're saying there's no political direction to the system. Um, Ian Kennedy, chairman of the British Medical Association, said the NHS all you can eat buffet approach was no longer sustainable. So, what he's saying is it can't do everything. We're going to have to say no to people. And we need political leadership as to what to say no because it's a politically led system, which I, I maintain is part of the problem. But th- he's saying that uh, we need political leadership, and the political leadership's too afraid to ever say no on the subject of the NHS, therefore the system gets worse and worse and worse. The political leadership becomes part of the problem. Uh, writing the uh, Scottish Mail on Sunday, Kennedy said the NHS is dying because of crippling staff staff shortages, the AE crisis and a broken health and social care system. So it's dying because it's of a broken, the healthcare system's dying because of a broken healthcare system. It's a bit circular. Um, And he pointed to one thing, for example, the SNP are giving away free paracetamol, even though it's very cheap, but it's costing them a lot of money. So it's an example of the inherent inefficiency of central planning. Uh, The BMA said it was fundamentally opposed to a two-tier service, but warned that the NHS can no longer offer everything to everyone. So the BMA seems to be in two minds about it and doesn't know what to say. Uh, The public and politicians need to decide what they want to prioritise, and they will need to make choices. How do we do that, I wonder? Uh, Because there's no price signals, because it's not a free market, it's all centrally controlled, so they have problems. These are the problems manifesting themselves. He said that rationing was already happening with some appointments and treatments limited unless a condition is causing serious problems. I mean, this is actually old news. Rationing's been going on for a long, long time. This is how the system is unfortunately managed at the moment, and it is awful. Now... um, We've got a few stats just to show what awful means. And they're interesting. They come from Public Health Scotland. The website's very interesting. You can go and search individual hospitals, individual health boards, and get a a really interesting insight on what's going on. It's called NHS performs a weekly update of emergency department activity and waiting time statistics. So the number of people, the percentage of people being treated within four hours, you see is declining rapidly. It's now down to nearly 60%. So if you're going to go to AE in Scotland, you're going to have to wait for quite a while. Um, but it's not unprecedented demand, right? It's not. It's a failure of the system. So if you look at the number of attendances, they are just where they were back in 2015. Right? It's not the number of people that are going. The problem's not the people. The problem's the system. Um, going into this a little more deeply... Um, OK, so they're not, they're not hitting the four-hour target, but you see here that uh, both the number over four hours but also the number over eight hours and the number over 12 hours, they're all growing. So there's well over a 1,000 people who waited 12 hours in an A&E um, uh, during that time period, uh, and, that's, and that's a week in Scotland. So that, that shows you just how bad it is. Um, now, I said that the um, number of weekly attendances is not going up it's it's flat. Uh, to illustrate this we have Queen Elizabeth University Hospital, largest hospital in Glasgow, um, and you see there the graph it, it shoots up at the extreme left-hand side because that's when the hospital opened, um, but basically apart from the lockdowns when the the use of the service was, was suppressed hugely um, you see that the the level of demand on the A&E is actually below where it was in 2018, 2017, 2019. This isn't the nature of the problem. But, interestingly enough, digging into these figures, we found that both in Glasgow and in Edinburgh, the children's hospital's uh, emergency care was way up. Now, I don't know why children are getting ill, but they are. And you see that's now a record level from from 2015 to now in the Royal Hospital for Sick Children in Glasgow. It's the same in the hospital in Edinburgh. That's one to watch. Um, So that's a quick overview of where we're at. There's a small realisation that something needs to be done. There's no political will, control, idea or thought as to what to do about it. The experts uh, are not going to help us. And uh, the system, meanwhile, is in a state of what's very
0: close to collapse
2: Mm.
0: okay thank you for that um david just give our viewers and listeners a reminder that just before christmas we did a really interesting interview with a gentleman called duncan white that was called the nhs from vocational calling to common purpose and in that interview we started to look in detail at just how the nhs has been collapse from the inside. So I encourage you to get onto the UK Column website and have a look for that. But if, if we follow through on how the damage has been done to the NHS, let's also just recap with two slides uh, with a quote from a policeman uh, who was basically complaining that his policemen were exhausted. This is Steele, Steve Hartshorn, National Chairman of the Police Federation, his, uh, officers, were, officers were exhausted and many felt that they were on their knees already he was saying this because he was coming out and saying why you couldn't have police officers driving ambulances that they were just too too exhausted on their knees and uh, what we pointed out of course was that well the comment on their knees was absolutely correct because this indeed is what uh, um, the police chief's organization has helped facilitate which is police wasting their time in this type of nonsense, instead of doing their job. But it's the agenda that counts. So let's look at the NHS. And a big thank you to a viewer who passed this tweet over to me by a lady called Dr. Renee Hondekamp. And uh, what she was picking up on was uh, an article in the Daily Mail saying that NHS bosses want interview panels to justify why they have hired a white person. Uh, So what was the hospital? It was the uh, Royal Free. This was the uh, uh, main part of the article. Uh, Woke NHS bosses are forcing interview panels to explain why they've hired a white person over someone from an ethnic minority. Um, So the, the hospital requires... Uh, reports to be compiled justifying why the successful candidate was deemed more suitable and they've got a right to the trust chief executive with evidence on how they scored the non-white applicant and come up with suggestions on how the candidate can improve for next time and while all this is going on of course people are dying in the hospital for lack of treatment and care but uh, what's interesting is a very weak statement by the rule free of course we don't know who said it but the quote is we're committed to having a diverse workforce and we seek to ensure all candidates irrespective of their ethnicity have equal opportunities to work at the Royal Free London so no investigation by the Daily Mail at all nobody's responsible nobody's accountable no analysis well we decided we'd do a little bit for the uh, Daily Mail So who do we think might be accountable? Could it be the chief executive? We've got a Dr. John Connolly here. Um, We've also got the director of nursing. I think it's pretty unlikely that she was involved. Uh, We've got uh, a director of operations. Maybe it's this lady, or we've got the director of financial performance. Was he involved? Uh, I think that's unlikely because clearly this is excess bureaucracy which is going to cost money. Uh, we've then got a Natalie Ware Assistant Director of People. Now I found this fascinating because uh, to be an assistant, presumably there is a director, but the director wasn't named. Mm. But, so maybe we should be looking at the director of people uh, and then we've got directors of nursing and acting directors of operations. So. Could it be any of those people? Well, uh, we're going to leave it up to our audience to dig deeper, but maybe we should go higher and we should have a look at the, uh, the uh, London NHS Trust Foundation board. And uh, we've got Mark Lamb, who's chair there, and we've got Caroline Clark, who's the group chief executive. If you look closer at people, I've just selected some. So we're not saying these people have done anything wrong. We're just pointing out who they are and what their jobs are Uh, we've got this lady who's non-executive she's done a lot of work with financial industry in the past so presumably of value to the hospital Um, we've got this lady here she is interesting uh, because at the bottom of her cv you can see that she's been chair of the equality diversity and inclusion task force and the people committee so just maybe she is Uh, involved. We've got a Sarah Rapson. Could she be involved? We don't really know. And this brings us back to the chief executive here who ultimately must be involved. So uh, the Daily Mail can't seem to interview the right people. We would suggest a good starting point would be the chief executive, Caroline Clark, to ask her to justify why a hospital is doing this. And as a little bit of a segue here, David, I'm just going to say we haven't got money for the NHS in in the UK, but we've got plenty of money for war in Ukraine and supporting Mr Zelensky. And you're picking up that the EU is looking for further support.
2: Well, yeah. So we've got um, uh, uh, Jen Stoltenberg joined the EU Defence Ministers at the Foreign Affairs Council, uh, to discuss how to support Ukraine, um, training and uh, military mobility. And it's very interesting that military mobility, a subject that we reported on extensively during the push to have an integrated EU military union, uh, which um, essentially was um, undermined by the Brexit vote. Uh, but we were reporting on that several years ago at some length. And here we have military mobility. Uh, coming once again to the fore, so this is the logistical ability to put large amounts of men and materiel well onto the eastern front, um, and it uses the uh, EU civilian infrastructure piggybacks on on top of that, and creates the ability to move uh, move uh, r- rapid military resources anywhere in the EU. But where's the land border? Well, it's in the east. Yep.
0: Well, David, uh, all of that, of course, involves money, a lot of money, and uh, we're going to be looking in more detail in our section on Ukraine. But before we get there, let's have a look at this American Congress lady starting to ask the right questions about where American money is going, money that's allocated to Ukraine and other places.
5: Privileged resolution. Um, and what this will do is it will hold our government accountable for all of the funding for Ukraine. So I want to talk about that a little bit at the end, but let me explain the situation we have here. Congress has appropriated $54 billion to aid in the Ukrainian conflict, and then our president, Joe Biden, has requested another $38 billion this week. The American people, the taxpayers of this country, deserve to know – where their money is going and how it's being spent. Let's just break this down a little bit. Of the $54 billion appropriated by Congress, $44 billion is for aid to Ukraine and other affected countries. But what is what other countries? And how are they affected? And how did the American People's Taxpayer Dollars go to those countries? And to who? And to what organization? To their government in what way? Also, how is the military assistance being appropriated? $23.3 billion is for military assistance to Ukraine and other countries impacted by the war. Again, what are, who are the other countries? How are they impacted? Are we talking about Poland, where Ukraine fired missiles and it accidentally killed two people in Poland? Is that what we're talking about? But let's talk about the aid to Ukraine. Here in the news, we're just finding out about the situation with FTX and the cryptocurrency so is american people's taxpayer dollars going to fund aid in ukraine but yet it's really funding something else that's happening maybe ending up in democrat donors pockets was that helping democrat campaigns was that helping democrat candidates get elected 8.9 billion is for the humanitarian assistance including emergency food and assistance for Ukraine and Ukrainian refugees in the region and for other countries directly impacted by the conflict. Again, what other countries and how much money went to the other countries and what organizations are involved? Who runs these organizations and why did they get the contracts? $11.8 billion in other assistance, including for direct budget support, to Ukraine and development aid and other assistance to Ukraine and other affected countries. What development aid? What assistance? Who is running this? These are all the questions the American people have.
0: So it seems to me that that's a lady who's absolutely on the ball. And just very, very quickly, uh, David, of course, the same uh, the same business is going on here in UK. Vast amounts, billions of pounds of public money being handed over to Ukraine without any checks and balances. So we've got the, the same policy running in the States as we have got in UK. We're looking at something beyond governments here. Um, but uh, what did you think of her words?
2: Well, these are excellent questions. The, the the entire print the entire policy position makes no sense because we're simultaneously raising interest rates to reduce the money supply. So this is this is this means it's going to be more expensive to borrow. The Western governments do not have enough taxation income for the size of the state that they have created even without the Ukraine war, so it's all based on borrowing. So our policy is to drive up the cost of borrowing while simultaneously borrowing to give it to the Ukraine to shoot it at the Russians. This is not very coherent. And then you've got the vagueness and where does the money actually go and the vast amounts of waste that's involved with this. And and we've done this once with COVID, we've run this system, we know where it goes because we're now in the mess that we created via the um, well we're not going to have a real economy we're just going to print paper money and uh, have a pretend economy for a year and that'll work out okay well we now know that that doesn't work out okay we see the inflation that it's caused uh, and we, we see the, the economic dislocation that comes with it she's right to be asking all of those questions.
0: I, I think so, but let's have a look at a little bit more about what she says because she brings in another subject, another subject, of course, which we can align with here in UK. Let's see where she goes.
5: Now, here, think about it like this: separately from congressional appropriations, the Biden administration has already committed seventeen point six billion dollars in security assistance directly to Ukraine since the start of the war just this year it's been about 10 months the biden administration has also authorized 23 drawdowns that's selling weapons and equipment under the presidential drawdown authority since august of 2021 for a total value of 10.6 billion dollars now let's compare that all of this to what our border receives our border patrol asks for 15.46 billion dollars to secure the border of the united states President Trump's border wall would have only cost $22 billion. With the money we've sent to Ukraine, we could have already secured our border, but we're not doing that. We're ignoring the, the dangers happening at our border and the national security crisis that's happening in our country while we are completely protecting another country's border and also waging a proxy war with Russia. We had 5 million people cross our border illegally since Joe Biden took office. And let's compare that to how many Russians have invaded Ukraine. 82,000 Russians have invaded Ukraine. I think the American people and the taxpayers of this country deserve to know why the Biden administration and this Congress is so interested in funding the protection of Ukraine's border and not the protection of our border. That's a very good question.
0: So there we are key question we've got exactly the same thing going on in uk all of the money is being handed over to ukraine meanwhile we can't seem to control our own borders so i'm going to suggest what we're seeing is not national policy this is globalist policy uh, being enacted and let's bring in mark anderson because of course mark you're on the ground you're talking to people who are in particular affected by the uh, huge migration into the United States. And it means that both the citizens of United States are suffering, and also the migrants themselves. So welcome to UK column in 2023. Um, what can you tell us Mark? Yeah, Happy
6: New Year, guys.
0: Yeah, um, the tension is
6: continuing to build, especially in Texas. And I focus a lot on Texas, not just because I live here, but because it comprises about 1200 miles of the 1900 mile US border with Mexico. And I've done some reporting on Arizona. The two states together would comprise about 80% of that border and the vast majority of the illegal entries. And here, what we're seeing on the screen, um, the first item I've got up here is Greg Abbott says, Texas has bused nearly 16,000 migrants to sanctuary cities this year. This happens to be an Epic Times headline. And uh, I've got some narrative here that begins to explain the situation at the table. Uh, Moving on, when the Texas ranchers, ranch hands, and ex-military citizen border scouts with whom UK Column has been regularly corresponding about the border crisis, when they hear that three busloads of migrants from Texas arrived in Washington, D.C., near Vice President Kamala Harris's official home at the U.S. Naval Observatory, they become livid, as they point out in what's becoming a widespread sentiment that Texas Governor Greg Abbott is facilitating human trafficking, as we're seeing here on the screen. These men and women are fed up, really more than fed up, with Abbott talking tough about border defense while allegedly carrying out the very actions that they say aid and abet the border invasion that Abbott himself officially declared on November 15th, just this past November 15th. And keep in mind that when Abbott made that declaration, he cited the repel the sudden invasion clauses of both the U.S. and the Texas state constitutions, both of them, which is a very important point to keep in mind. And to think that the above-noted D.C. drop-off of these illegals on Christmas Eve and their backgrounds are often unknown is only a small part of a much larger transfer of illegals into the U.S. heartland, quote, Texas has bussed over 15,900 migrants to sanctuary cities, Greg Abbott himself recently boasted on Twitter, while appearing to be unaware of the inherent contradiction of officially declaring that Texas uh, is literally being invaded, even while he sends the invaders into, in his own words, sanctuary cities. And by definition, As this UK column writer, yours truly, has gathered over the last several years covering the US border crisis and the generally related global cities movement for bottom-up world government, so-called sanctuary cities provide refuge for those entering the US illegally. And these sanctuary cities have been roundly criticized by pro-border sheriffs and others. So what is Greg Abbott actually doing here Uh, is what I'm being asked by many ranchers, um, ranch hands, and people that watch the border every day and live on the border. And moving on, in recent years, the largely liberal mayors in major U.S. cities have not only given quarter to illegal entrants, but at times, such as in Oakland, California, and in Chicago, Illinois, have actively tried to thwart efforts by the federal government via the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement or ICE agency to actually apprehend the illegals. Curiously, Texas Governor Abbott also noted on Twitter, quote, we're providing relief to local communities overwhelmed by President Biden's open border policy, end quote. Yet, since April of 2022, this third-term Republican governor, whose most staunch critics rate him as a thinly-veiled globalist, has transported at least 8,900 illegal immigrants to Washington, D.C., 4,900 to New York City, 1,500 to Chicago, and 630 to Philadelphia. And um, moving on, we see a letter that Governor Abbott submitted to Joe Biden. And in this letter, I've got some uh, quick excerpts. Abbott's December 2022 letter to Biden, only a little over a month after his invasion declaration, sent only five weeks after that invasion declaration to Biden, contains some contradictions. It states in part, quote, this terrible crisis for border communities in Texas is a catastrophe of your own making. Abbott tells Biden, these communities and the state are ill-equipped to do the job assigned to the federal government, house the thousands of migrants flooding into the country every day. With perilous temperatures moving into the area, many of these migrants are at risk of freezing to death on city streets. And as I point out, and it's emphasized here, yet Abbott has made sure to transfer these migrants to even colder regions during one of the coldest snaps in terms of weather in a long time, I might add. Uh, Abbott's letter to Biden then noted Texas has borne a lopsided burden caused by your open border policies. And this is what Abbott added in this same letter to Biden. The need to address this crisis is not the job of border states like Texas. Oh, really? Instead, the U.S. Constitution dictates that it is your job, Mr. President, Biden, or, uh, Abbott went on to write to Biden, to defend the borders of our country Regulate our nation's immigration and manage those who seek to uh, who seek refuge here. Now again, Governor Abbott of Texas is talking out both sides of his mouth, according to the critics that I've been talking to: uh, constitutional sheriffs, uh, ranchers and ranch hands, and citizen border scouts, some of whom are ex-military who live and operate along the border. But they're basically saying that, on the one hand, Abbott invoked both the state and national constitutions in declaring a invasion, and then does the very things that help facilitate that invasion, moving more and more people to the sanctuary cities that Abbott himself in recent years has criticized. And so all of this facilitates the open border as more and more people in Central and South America and other countries of origin, when they hear about what Abbott's doing, even more of them will flood to the border and illegally enter the United States. So they too can be bused to these cities of their choice. And even if they're not cities of their choice, sanctuary cities by definition, whether they're formally sanctuary cities or informally sanctuary cities, by definition, the liberal liberal, leftist Democrat mayors that run most of those cities are very prone to give them cover and give them actual refuge from federal detention and apprehension. And Abbott has got to know this, his growing chorus of critics are saying. And so Abbott is really going out on a limb politically here, and uh, according to these critics, showing his globalist true colors. And there's something I'll cover a little later called the doctrine of the lesser magistrate that puts this in even broader perspective. But this situation in Texas and the greater U.S. border with Mexico is really reaching the near breaking point, guys. And so this is the latest update.
0: said, the Congress lady, she she was quite right in pointing out that the money can go in for the protection of Ukraine, but it can't be used for the protection of the US borders. Exactly the same policy here in UK. And um, many of our viewers and listeners will not be aware that we have designated sanctuary cities in UK. So that is also not a a national policy for the US or the UK. That is another globalist policy and this is really now what we're beginning to see. Globalist political agenda is driving in both the US and and the UK. Um, Okay, if you uh, like what the UK Column does
1: and you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. You'd be very welcome as a member there. We do need your financial support and that would be very much appreciated. Uh, You can pick uh, some stuff up at the UK Column shop, uh, but uh, please also share any material you find online. Uh, and David, very briefly, we have uh, a reminder here of the Furnethi conference.
2: Yes, yeah, so this is a conference for the Furnethi ladies. So uh, if if the Furnethi was a, a, a house used uh, by Glasgow Corporation and subsequent bodies uh, for uh, schoolgirls girls, um, Tens of thousands of schoolgirls went through this this institution over a period of three decades. so if if you are one of the Freney women uh, and you suffered abuse or, or or trauma there, please come along to this event at ten thirty for eleven o'clock on Sunday, the twenty second of January. Um, what we'll have there is we'll have uh, some some talks by by people who are, uh, by Fnethi women who are leading the uh, the campaign on the subject matter. Uh, also an introduction by John Shields of the Fresh Start Foundation. I'll be looking at the information we've managed to gather in in, a, in about six weeks of research on the subject, which is going to be quite an interesting story. And then there'll be a chance for the Fnethi women to uh, recount their experience as well. we'll we also have a, a speech by John Halley, an advocate, who has... A very interesting story to tell about how he was treated by the Scottish Government and the Child Abuse Inquiry, and this shows you the nature of uh, the state uh, in these areas. We'll have a panel to discuss the next steps, and uh, Brian uh, Gerrish is coming up to join us, and he'll be doing the closing address. Uh, Since we've got Brian in Scotland, and we like to work him very hard when he comes up, we've also got a meeting the following night on the Glow Centre Modal, 6.30 for 7 Brian speaking, as is Dr. Bruce Scott and Richard Lucas, Uh, and I'll have a few words to say as well. Um, And uh, just one quick uh, pointer towards an article just up on the website, Huston We Have a Problem. This is a follow-up to uh, the Stephen Sutherland case. Uh, Stephen Sutherland, The Unanswered Questions, was a 2017 article we did. This is a follow-up to it, and I hope people will have a look at this, uh, it illustrates the failure of uh, Police Scotland and the really, uh, the, the, the very low quality sort of investigation that now passes for investigation in Scotland. And the the failure of them to uh, address the issues that this particular family are raising in any sort of coherent manner. Uh, And finally, uh, we've got uh, an an event coming up in Edinburgh, Truth Be Told. This is about giving a voice to the injured and bereaved uh, caused by the COVID vaccine rollout. Um, There'll be a number of these all across the country. The Edinburgh one is on the 7th of January, 1pm, outside St Giles Cathedral, High Street, Edinburgh.
1: Okay, thank you for that, David. Now, uh, let's move on to Ukraine. And uh, well, I wanted to start off with this article in the uh, Mail. This uh, was over the Christmas holidays. Uh, And uh, well, the headline is thousands of soldiers from Ukraine's as of regiment gather to watch a Viking longboat burn at ceremony in memory of their fallen comrades and the daily mail uh, showed this uh, fantastic uh, video that uh, was on telegram this is totally promoting as of brigade the mail is a disgrace here um, but uh, they're showing the viking longboat being um, being burned Um, so i don't know i'll I'll ask uh, david for his thoughts in a second but uh, what this reminded me very much of with of course the uh, norse mythology and so on very much part of Nazi propaganda during the Second World War, uh, including uh, longboats indeed. But uh, the Mail very keen to promote this idea. But I just want to uh, end by making the point uh, about a couple of the comments on here. So let's have a look at them. This is uh, the true face of current Ukrainianist regime, says one person, Uh, another person saying the Mail supports this filth uh, and the government sends them financial aid, your money. And a final quote here. Torchlight processions, funny insignia on flags, where have I seen that before? Apparently they're our best mates now. So uh, David, just very, very briefly on that. Uh, some people understand what the mail was doing there.
2: Yes, and we've seen this more and more, that the comments, the comments are the key to these things. It shows where the narrative is failing and people are, are unpicking it and understanding what's really happening. Uh, and th- there's a particular irony here because if they're looking to Norse ancestry, well, the Russian people can look to Norse ancestry as well. Um, it's, a, it's a strange one to pick, unless, of course, you're influenced by um, Nazi uh, ideology, in which case it's not so strange. Yeah, indeed.
1: Uh, very quickly here, the Kiev Independent uh, was interviewing Francois Hollande, the former president of France. Uh, there will only be one way out of the conflict when Russia falls on the fields on the ground is what he was saying. Uh, the usual rhetoric in this, I'm not going to talk about it, but I just wanted to mention, Brian, that uh, along to confirming what uh, Angela Merkel had said in December about the Minsk agreements uh, being a cynical attempt to give Ukraine some extra time to prepare uh, and nothing to do with the peace process at all.
0: Yeah, and of course it now means that quite rightly, Putin can't trust a word that the uh, West Europeans or the US says. Uh, But, of course, our man, the Minister for War, Ben Wallace, um, over the Christmas period has been um, saying, well, more war. What else would the Minister of War say? But the Belfast Telegraph picking up here, this is on some um, sailors who are uh, standing in for border force at Manchester Airport, apparently. Um, And uh, the headline is Russia must face long term consequences for Ukraine, says Wallace. Uh, I think he should go to uh, Russia and tell the Russians direct. Um, So this is part of what he had to say. The UK is continuing to provide military aid to the government in Kiev with another 2.3 billion worth of support due next year, current year to help it acquire the weapons it needs. Money is of no issue if it's to do with killing overseas. It's simply UK public. We can't help. Uh, He said, very importantly, we should point out and remind the world that what we're seeing is Russia breaking international law, systematically being involved in war crimes and rape and all those those things. So no evidence for any of those crass statements, uh, but remember plenty of money to support uh, a regime which we've just identified as seemingly being very closely aligned to matters Nazi. Uh, Ben Wallace, we have to all stand up to that and make sure Russia understands that unless it ceases what it's doing now, there will be long-term consequences. words fail me David I have to give you the opportunity to come in here to see Ben Wallace uh, threatening Russia this is another flaccid paper tiger I I just do not know how to describe this man he is so unbelievably is he ignorant yes I think he is Uh, stupid possibly dangerous absolutely
2: what 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 is the point here? Russia, stop. What stops? What ceasefire? No, no, that's not what he's saying. They have to, they have to withdraw, uh, including from Crimea. Uh, they've got to abandon Sevastopol as as, a, as the main base for their fleet. I'm assuming, that's what he's he's saying. It's not clear. This is incoherent stuff. It's just, um, it's almost childlike yes. in its yes. in its delivery.
0: Yes and um, in the middle of this article um, they uh, waxed lyrical because ben wallace had picked up apparently on what gordon brown had said i noticed gordon brown's comments yesterday well what was this to do with uh, well gordon brown uh, obviously knows how to tweet and he tweeted out a special international tribunal now taking shape in the hague could indict president putin for the crime of aggression Well, that's a very interesting statement. So here is the old man himself. Britain and the United States should now take the lead in not only supporting Ukraine, but protecting the legacy of 1945. Mm -hmm. Perhaps that's what they're doing, Mike. The legacy is not the legacy we think of supporting the victims of the Second World War. It's supporting the people who prosecuted it Uh, from the Nazi side but he goes on the Nuremberg moment that gave us the idea of accountability for international crimes there should be no hiding place for Russia's warmongers by striking fear the long prison sentences lie ahead many of his inner inner cabal could start to distance themselves from Putin well what a shame that some members senior members of the Labour Party didn't end up in prison uh, for their conduct in overseas wars David. This man is truly disgraceful. No wonder he's been working for the United Nations.
2: And what's he saying? He's saying that we're going to we're going to prosecute this as a total war, the same way that we did in the Second World War, where only total total defeat of the Russians, presumably Western military marching through the Kremlin. Um, And and the the prosecution of Putin for war crimes will be an acceptable end to the conflict. He's saying total war, not limited war. That's the implication. Now, he's either stupid or dangerous. I know where my vote goes.
0: Yeah, (laughs) both um well the bbc of course is fully behind ukraine so anything ukraine says the bbc simply regurgitates using uk public money of course Uh, but here was a statement by supposedly the spy chief uh, budanov saying that ukraine fighting is deadlocked i'd like people to take notice of the bbc journalists that contribute to this sort of stuff because some of them you can identify but very often some of them you can't identify Um, But uh, what did uh, Budinov have to say? He's adamant that Ukraine will ultimately retake all of the territory now under occupation, including Crimea. So this is pure fantasy land, which the BBC would have the British public believe as some form of factual statement. And uh, we've just got to say it's clear now that the BBC is the primary propaganda outlet for Ukraine. And uh, we're going to see more of this type of reporting as it becomes clear that Ukraine is being destroyed. And unless Ukraine stops fighting and starts to talk peace with the Russians, uh, Ukraine is not going to exist as a country anymore. Um, But uh, obviously the EU is also fully on the case for those nasty Russians.
2: Well, this is, this is what we're hearing from inside the EU, that, that, that it's almost impossible to say anything that doesn't have a preamble which is anti-Russian before anything substantial is said. Here we see Ursula von der Leyen um, uh, being used as the European Commission and has unveiled plans essentially for setting up a gallows for Putin. Um, i'm only exaggerating slightly setting up a specialist court backed by the united nations not sure how that will work to investigate and prosecute possible war crimes committed by russia in ukraine so we're setting up the post-victory nuremberg trial uh, but this is another version of it so one's not enough so we have to have two courts to prosecute this um and um, we've also got here uh, an EU official tweeting out the EU's uh, new mission, um, EU MAM. EU MAM um, will enhance the Ukraine's military capability uh, of the armed forces in the defence of the country against Russia's war of aggression. Right. So this is the military assistance mission, the EU military assistance mission to. Uh, to the Ukraine, yeah. and he concludes military training will now start under the EU flag. I find that particularly creepy.
1: Uh, well, it's not just creepy, uh, David. That is that is the European Defence Union finally finally coming out into the open. I mean, we've seen military training with uh, we've seen British servicemen uh, wearing the EU flag on various uh, training operations and so on in the past. We've highlighted that in the past. Uh, but but this, I think, is the first time that uh, the EU has openly announced it.
2: Yes. And this final slide, this is the press release uh, from uh, 15th November about the launch of the uh, European Union military assistance mission. Um, and the interesting point here is the assistance measure will have a duration of 24 months. So that might give you a clue about how long they at least think the war is going to last. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, if uh, we think we're going to see the truth as to what's happening in Ukraine, uh, it's probably not going to come through via Twitter. And uh, I'd just like to flag up that over the Christmas period, one of the uh, 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 tweeters um, who uh, has put out some extremely good information on uh, what's been happening in Ukraine, well, when I went looking for the the, uh, Twitter page, it had gone, And this led me to following through to learn more about this suspended account. And I found it very interesting to actually be reading about uh, Twitter's definition of how it uh, defines the public interest. Um, So it says it uh, Twitter generally actions tweets that violates our rules. Uh, however, we recognise that sometimes it may be in the public interest to allow people to view tweets that would otherwise be taken down. We consider content to be in the public interest if it directly contributes to understanding or discussion of a matter of public concern. Well, that sounds OK, but as you read on, you find that uh, their, their limiting exceptions uh, mean that really you've got to be an elected or government official uh, to get the uh, Um, protection yeah to get the protection so don't think that you're going to be a member of the public with a huge following and you're you're putting out what is essentially truth and you're going to be able to tweet that out no you're simply one of the plebs you can only possibly get through Twitter censorship if you were part of the government machinery Um, so this was the second page you can freeze this and have a look for yourself Um, but these are the criteria for exceptions here And uh, essentially, uh, if you are aligned politically, they are going to give you protection. So if you have a look at what uh, Ukraine government was tweeting out, this I found particularly offensive over the Christmas period. Uh, But of course, there's plenty of tweets, which is everything about ramping up the violence. So nothing is sacred on Twitter, but if you're Ukrainian government, then anything, anything about the violence and weapons is good. And just a reminder here that it was, of course, the BBC Media Action, which set up modern media in Ukraine. And uh, uh, BBC Media Action has been boasting that it's sticking with Ukraine during the conflict. They don't want the conflict to stop. They do want journalists to uh, be protected. Uh, But the BBC is clearly supporting Ukraine-backed propaganda. And if we have a little look at BBC Media Action and their uh, board of trustees, I found it very interesting that this gentleman, Nick Pickles, was the former head of public policy for Twitter UK. So presumably the BBC so called charity, BBC Media Action, uh, won't be banned on Twitter anytime soon.
1: Mm. Uh, and uh, well, let's bring Jens Stoltenberg back on screen. He was on the BBC PM programme yesterday. Uh, and he had this to say the Ukrainian forces had the momentum for several months, but we also know that Russia has mobilized many more forces. Many of them not are now training. Therefore, what have we got to do? We've got to keep pumping the money in and keep the money flows going and the weapons flows going. This all indicates they're prepared to continue the war but, uh, and also try to potentially launch a new offensive. We need to provide support to Ukraine now, including military support, because that's the only way to convince Russia. They have to sit down and negotiate in good faith and respect Ukraine as a sovereign, independent nation in Europe. And uh, this really, for me, Brian, highlights once again what a liar Jens Stoltenberg is. So if we just put that back on screen again for a second, uh, because the only way to convince Russia they have to sit down, we have been actively convincing Ukraine not to sit down. Uh, that's we as in the UK and also the EU but, and NATO actively convincing Ukraine not to sit down. Russia hasn't been the problem here.
0: Well, indeed, put it it from the other side as well. Russia has consistently, until recently, said we are prepared to negotiate, but Ukraine has refused to uh, negotiate. But Stoltenberg calling for this offensive, which Ukraine is not capable of carrying out, is simply going to result in the deaths of tens, hundreds of thousands of of more Ukrainians. So, Jens Stoltenberg, is he the man that should be brought brought in front of a Nuremberg trial, perhaps? Well, possibly. Uh,
1: Now, let's bring uh, this Gent, uh, Christoph Hoogson on screen. He's the chairman of the Munich Security Conference. He's a former advisor to the German government. Um, and well, he's calling for uh, the EU. If David's talking about uh, EU, EU military training under an EU flag, he wants the EU to have uh, full nuclear capability. Uh, if the US focuses more on Asia, he says, and Europe has to take care of its own security, Nuclear capability should no longer be a taboo subject. But here's the kicker, David, are you ready for it? Uh, We should take up this offer and make it a European project that allows British participation. So here we are, Britain into EU Defence Union as quickly as possible. That's what they're working for. But he's talking about uh, focus of the US onto the South China Sea. That certainly seems to be uh, ramping up nicely in 2023. Uh, Here's the war zone, a mock attack on US Navy vessels underway during Chinese fighters' unsafe intercept. So uh, this uh, many will have seen the video clip of this over the weekend or over the last few days. Uh, The Chinese Navy simulated an attack on a U.S. Navy task group in the South China Sea on December the 21st, the same day that a Chinese J-11 fighter jet intercepted a U.S. Air Force RC-135 surveillance aircraft in what the Pentagon termed an unsafe maneuver. Uh, It goes on to say uh, intense Chinese military activity in the South China Sea is hardly unusual, although it's interesting to note in this case the exercise scenario apparently targeted U.S. Navy, Navy vessels specifically on December the 21st according to SCS probing initiative the US military sent 3 P-8A maritime patrol aircraft 1 RC-135V surveillance aircraft and 1 E-3G airborne early warning and control aircraft from Clark Air Force Base and Kadena uh, air, air Base to operate over the South China Sea and south of the Taiwan Strait. Uh, the RC 135 in question could very well have been the one intercepted by the J 11. Uh, as to the RC 135's encounter with the J 11, a US military spokesperson confirmed her orders that the Chinese jet actually came within 10 feet of the surveillance plane's web, or wing, uh, but 20 feet from its nose. It was the position of the Chinese jet off the nose. Uh, which reportedly caused the US aircraft to take evasive manoeuvres to avoid a collision. So there you go. What do you make of that?
0: Uh, Well, um, what do I think of it? I, I, (laughs) I think it's childish propaganda because in all big military exercises over a great many years, certainly during the Cold War, uh, there were always close encounters between the various forces. It's what happens in these events. Uh, the reason that the Americans are whinging is that this is the first time they've uh, they've been put under pressure in this way by the Chinese, and they don't like it. But is this unusual? No. Do the Americans do it with their own fighter aircraft? Absolutely. Do the British do it? Yes. So this is a story designed to, uh, um, I think, get sympathy for the U.S. as the underdog in protecting world freedom, Mm. supposedly.
1: Yes. Let's move back to Mark then.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, Mark, this is coming down to the real human people level, but you've been having a little bit of a look at uh, people who are attempting to defy tyrants. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Uh, Earlier when I talked about Texas Governor Greg Abbott uh, contradicting himself in both his words and his policies as he claims to be the border defender, um, as I've been researching this, I came across something here that I've seen before, and it really fits the situation. I would also refer it to what the British Prime Minister was saying earlier, and David was talking about it in today's broadcast, that it was sort of empty words and the people are subjectively encouraged to just fill in the blanks. Well, when you look at the doctrine of the lesser magistrates here, once again, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, it's something that was developed in 1550 by German Christian men. And this really outlines kind of a governance framework that would be in the interest of freedom, God, and country. And it's something that Greg Abbott could, but is not, he could be, but is not observing, according to some of the people I've been talking to about this. And what is the lesser magistrate doctrine? Well, let's look at it a little bit. This is very interesting. The lesser magistrate doctrine teaches that when the superior or higher ranking civil authority makes unjust immoral law policy or court opinion, and it could could be President Biden in this case, especially about the border, the lower or lesser ranking civil authority has both the God-given right and the duty emphasis To refuse obedience to that superior authority and, if necessary, actively resist the superior authority. Interesting. Moving on, the doctrine was first formalized by Christian men in Magdeburg, Germany in 1550. The lesser magistrate doctrine is rooted in the historic Christian doctrine of interposition. Interposition is where one steps into the gap, placing themselves in between the oppressor and his intended victim or victims interposition can take place verbally or physically some Christian activists uh, use interposition to protest at abortion clinics for example the law of God is the objective standard get that Mr. Ritchie there in the p.m at 10 Downing Street listen closely the law of God the law of God is the objective standard to which all men and all governments of men are accountable If civil authorities make law, policy, or court opinion that is contrary to God's law, the lesser magistrates are to interpose and stop the evil. Let those words sink in. Stop the evil can also be translated to mean solve the problem. Moving on a little bit, it also brings the people themselves into it. The duty of the people, meanwhile, is to rally with the interposing magistrates all public authorities, magistrates, possess lawful authority. If federal authorities do wrong, think of Biden again, it is the duty of state, hear that Mr. Mr. Abbott, county and local authorities to step in and stop the evil or solve the problem. If state authorities do wrong, listen again, Greg Abbott, it is the duty of county and local officials to step in and solve the problem or stop the evil. State, county, and local magistrates take an oath to uphold both their state constitution and the U.S. constitution. They do not take an oath of subservience to the federal government, nor do they take an oath to blindly obey the authority above them. And a lot of people, I think, um, wrongly assume that when a state official, let's say Governor Abbott of Texas, takes an oath to uphold both the state and federal constitutions that the federal part is an act of subservience. It is not. And so Greg Abbott, just to name one example of many, is in that unique position, if he's aware of this doctrine of all, that yes, he argued in his letter to Biden that Biden's primary federal job is to secure the border. But what Texas Governor Abbott seems to be missing And this is a point brought out by many of his critics with whom I've been speaking. What he seems to be missing is that when uh, President Biden fails and refuses to secure that border, it is the duty of governors like Abbott to step in, to interpose and secure that border. Because one thing that many of Abbott's critics have pointed out to me, these border ranch hands and border ranchers, is that when Biden got in office in 2021, He immediately went to war against Texas, uh, doing whatever he could to facilitate larger and larger uh, numbers of people entering the Lone Star State illegally. So Abbott, Abbott's critics say, has known from day one that Biden is not going to do anything substantive, if anything at all, to stop the border breach. And so Abbott has no excuse, according to his critics. This is not my opinion so much, it's theirs. Abbott has no excuse uh, in not uh, taking the ball and running with it and securing the border where he knows Biden will not do it. And again, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that when Abbott uh, invoked the invasion of Texas, he did it through both the US and the state constitution. So absent any federal action, that state constitution becomes the central tool through which Abbott is duty-bound, his critics say, duty-bound to secure that border when the feds won't do it. And it's an interesting thing to move on. Uh, there's one more point about the doctrine of the lesser magistrate that's also very important uh, before we get to Matt Trujella there. They are, and there's four planks to the to this doctrine, and it, it, it's in the order of importance. Self-government, number one. Family government, number two church government number three and last civil government each has its own role function and limits so government is supposed to come from the bottom up the self the family the church from the bottom up up to the civil government not the other way around and uh uh, moving on to the last plank of this uh, all-important topic we're showing here Matt Trujella, he's the pastor of Mercy Seat Christian Church, founded in 1988 in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. And he's the founder of Missionaries to the Preborn. He's actually been arrested, interposing against abortuaries. Through his research and teaching on the biblical studies of the lower magistrate, Pastor Matt Trujella came across the Magdeburg Confession, which is an all-important historical work that became the first in the history of mankind to set forth in a doctrinal format what only later pe- later became to be known as the Lesser Magistrate Doctrine. Pastor Trella and his wife Clara live in Milwaukee, they have 11 children. So that that's uh, one of the main guys that's um, um, using and building his work on this doctrine and spreading the word about it, and it's been around a long time. And it provides that foundational infrastructure of how government in the view, in, you know, in the context of this doctrine, how it's supposed to operate from the ground up, not the top down, as I mentioned. So it has a very interesting um, backdrop to the border issue and many other issues that I'm sure we could think of that would apply to this. So that's what I got, guys.
0: Yeah, Mo, thank you very much for that. It's very interesting. Um, lots of things going through my head as you're talking. But the key point coming out is that we're all responsible. We cannot do nothing. It's it, it, it's ridiculous if we're sitting commenting but not doing something to actually stop what is happening. That's beholden on all of us. And any official, in however lowly a, a position, is also beholden to do something. And I think this takes us back to the fact um, in UK, the lowest... Um, authority you're likely to come in contact with is your parish council. Many people laugh at the parish councils, but actually if the parish council is motivated, they can actually move mountains. So maybe you're giving us a very good prompt to get back to the fact that each and every one of us has got to look at themselves and what we are doing, what we can do in our official positions in order to stop what you're describing as evil, which it certainly is. David, I don't know whether you've got anything just to add on that.
2: Well, there's th- a fascinating topic area. It's an area that I'm currently looking into, working on an article for the UK column on just this ground. Um, and uh, I think we should uh, come back to this in much longer format and discuss it in depth, because the ability to to, to stand up against tyranny is dependent upon having the intellectual ground on which to stand, and that's exactly what we're talking about here.
1: Okay, David, let's uh, move on to climate.
2: Yeah, it's very briefly... uh, I, the BBC just for, found a little window between one cold snap and the next one to push the global warming, we're all going to fry line. And I was so disgusted I thought I'd just remind everyone that uh, it is all a lie. Uh, we've got here three, three extracts from the uh, Tony Climate U- um, Twitter account, which is very good. It's always given the, the underlying data so you can check it all out yourself. And here we see the uh, rise in sea level uh, at the battery in New York, Um, which is basically uniform all the way back to uh, 1855, so back to the time of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, So there's no climate emergency there. Uh, We've also got the frequency of hot days in the US, where they're much declined, so um, no climate emergency there. And we've got uh, maximum temperature in the US, and we see that it's uh, much cooler and more, more... um, mild and moderate than the 1930s where we are seeing it's back to the level of um, uh, sort of the 1920s really and again no climate emergency there uh, it's all a lie uh, it's being used to take away our liberty and um, the intellectual case seems to have been surrendered by all of our institutions but not by individuals um, wh- who have the courage to speak the truth
0: Yeah, Thank you, David. Well, we're coming to the end of today's uh, news. Um, I think this is a very appropriate uh, tweet by um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who we heard speaking earlier in the news. Today and every day is 1776. Never give up our freedoms. Never let the left steal them away. Be a watchman on the wall and stay on guard every single second of every single day because the left will stop at nothing until they destroy our faith our families and our freedoms and it seems to me that that lady is uh, pretty much on the button.
1: Uh, and David then just to end we've got a little bit of video here.
2: A little bit of clip, this is a version of old Lang Syne um, with some video from various protests in Scotland. Friends of the UK column will notice a few faces they may recognise.
3: God, and never brought to mind, should old freedoms be forgot, and days of old lang syne, for
0: Well, David, thank you very much for that. Wonderful to see real people doing important things and smiling and having a good time while they're doing, doing it. And can we just say that uh, I think we're really overwhelmed by the support and kindness that UK Column has received over the Christmas period. So many cards, letters, uh, small gifts, small edible items sent to us, and uh, a lot of uh, comments thanking us for what we're doing. And of course, the key one continues to be thank you for keeping us sane. So thank you for keeping us sane and thank you all for your support. I hope it stays in 2023. Um, we have got some exciting news in store for you, but you're going to have to wait at the moment. So we will be back in a couple of minutes for some extra. Join us then. Well, bye well. bye.